Hello and welcome to this episode of the Elevation Podcast Series hosted by the Colorado PGA. When we first started this project, the goal was to help elevate the learning of our PGA professionals from people inside and outside the golf industry. That sounded good and great, but in the back of our minds, it was always a concern of ours as to who we would be able to get to join our show. We've been floored to date by the list of guests that have been on, from Super Bowl champions to New York Times bestsellers and others in between. The guest this week, in my mind, truly shows the power of connection through the game of golf as we were introduced to him by his coach, Steve Patterson, a PGA professional from Evergreen, Colorado, and a 2016 Colorado PGA Teacher of the Year. It also highlights the fact that if you simply ask, people are so open and willing to tell their story and lend themselves to the betterment of others. Rourke Denver is our guest this week, and this guy, a former Navy SEAL and the leader of the SEAL training program, is an absolute real-life superhero. He spent years serving our country in these days, shares his message as a public speaker on the corporate speaking trail. This guy is passionate about sharing his experiences with others so that we may better learn from what he has been able to accomplish. I hope you enjoy hearing from Rourke and the connections he makes between the game of golf and his service to our country. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Elevation Podcast Series hosted by the Colorado PGA. With us today, our co-host Steve Patterson and really the driving force behind getting our featured guest on with us today. Steve, he is a certified professional. He has 13 years of head professional experience at clubs in Illinois, Iowa, and Colorado. He's been a full-time instructor since 2009 when he was at Fossil Trace and then at Haiwan Golf Club. He most recently completed the coaching certification program with Golf Tech. Uh, Steve is is an award-winning PGA professional. He was the 2016 Colorado PGA Teacher of the Year, the 2000 Illinois PGA Bill Strasbaugh Award winner, and the 2001 Illinois PGA Junior Golf Leader Award winner. He has also uh, been noted by Golf Digest in their list of best teachers here in Colorado. So Steve, thank you for joining us. Thanks for uh, putting this together. Yeah, thank you. And uh, man, I'm super excited about this opportunity have a superstar presenting on the Elevation podcast. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. Uh, we are really, really excited to have our featured guest today, uh, Mr. Rourke Denver, joining us. Rourke is a retired Navy SEAL. Uh, he ran every phase of training for the U.S. Navy SEALs. Prior to that, he earned a bachelor's degree at Syracuse, where he was an All-American on the lacrosse team. Uh, he also earned a master's degree in global leadership from the University of San Diego. As an active duty Navy SEAL, he led special forces missions in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and other international hotspots. Uh, since his time as a, an active duty SEAL has come to an end, he's ventured off into a couple different directions. Uh, for those of you that have seen the film Active Valor, he was uh, he was the star of that film. He's written two incredible books. Uh, the first, Damn Few, Making the Modern SEAL Warrior, and Worth Dying for, A Navy SEAL's Call to a Nation. I downloaded uh, that book yesterday, and while I was reading another book and focusing on that one. I got lost in the first two chapters uh, pretty quickly. It was a great read. Uh, so Rourke, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we are ecstatic to have you uh, as part of uh, our Elevation podcast series. 
No, I'm delighted to do it. I appreciate the invite. Uh, good to meet you. Good to be with Steve, who's a, a good buddy and a coach of mine. So this is this is a, this is my kind of uh, my kind of audience and, and crew to talk to. Awesome. So, Rourke, we we talked about it just a little bit ago, uh, and I tried to to, to give a, a thirty thousand foot view of who you are, but. Touch on, on your experience, how you got to Colorado, an evergreen resident, so right here in our backyard, uh, but a, a water boy, if you will, being a, a Navy guy. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived all over. I grew up in the Bay Area, California, um, you know, California roots, but then my parents were both from uh, both upstate and New York City, so a lot of uh, East Coast family. Um, we moved around a little bit uh, growing up. College, as you mentioned, brought me back to Syracuse, mostly not because of uh, – um, familial connections which i have but really lacrosse uh being kind of the anchor point of me going on to um secondary education i, I the, the four walls of a classroom were never something that was a, a tremendous comfort of mine although i was always very intellectually curious curious a voracious reader uh, i'm a pretty well-read human being but it didn't really come out of my time in the classroom sports are what kind of brought me there in high-end competition in that era syracuse was you know really the dominant one of the true dominant forces on the on the um you know across landscape and um so i had a lot of fun playing out there and then then joined the navy uh was you know everybody starts basic training in san diego you then finish that and are either assigned to a seal team in san diego or one in virginia beach virginia i went back to the east coast in that era and spent time on both coasts uh my timing was very very lucky in that you know i got some time pre 9-11 which was um kind of like being part of the ultimate you know, fraternity, just a bunch of big, strong, fast, fit, fun, um, you know, wild men to spend time with. And then the world uh, collapsed and 9-11 unfolded and we took off into, you know, actual combat operations that are now approaching uh, a sustained level of two decades, which we never thought it would take that long. But I finished my active duty time in the assault teams on the East Co- or on the West Coast. I finished my career running both basic and the advanced training for SEALs um, out on the West Coast. And then my bride and I brought our two kiddos in the world in San Diego and just um, she's from real small town, Kentucky. And we kind of wanted a, a smaller place where we'd, you know, just get to know people, feel like we we're really tied into the fabric of the community, but also have access to um, the trappings of a bigger spot. And I, I don't I don't know if there's three other places in the country that have the one two punch of living up in the mountains outside of Denver and having access to Denver. It's, it's a great city, food, sports, music, arts all that stuff's there, but you know, we live in a town where 85 head elk can go walking through your backyard and, and it's pretty good. living. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a good fit. It's been a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you with you more. Colorado is a special place. So just to hop into this and, and, and kind of draw the connection, Rourke, what's, what's your background with golf? You, yeah, you so play I, a lot? No, I, you know, growing up, my dad, um, you know, my dad was an attorney when my brother and I were young, he was a young attorney at a, a real powerful law firm in Northern California. And I think, you know, many people obviously in the business space to this day, and certainly back then, um, golf is a big, you, you know, kind of bloodline that runs through, I think a lot of those cultures, his group was actually, um, you know, they had all kinds of teams, different sports, softball, basketball, you know, games, they, they were a very athletic group. Um, I don't think golf is a game he ever got hugely into, but I remember my brother and I, um, you know, swinging the clubs a little bit on like a Muni course somewhere in the Bay area. Um, so much so that it's just like fleeting memories and never put any energy and kind of commitment to it. Um, 
so when I actually left and never played again, um, you know, every once in a while you go to a bachelor party or, or you know, wedding and they were there playing golf, I'd usually just, you know, drive and watch the people uh, play, play the game because it's not one um, that's particularly easy to jump into and, and um, dazzle anybody if you're not putting time into it. And I, I, if I do something, I like doing it well and, and kind of being competitive or, or at least um, at a minimum serviceable. So I didn't jump back in. And then when I, um, when I left Navy, kind of the base of my pyramid amongst a lot of businesses and different things that I'm kind of working on is doing a lot of speaking event in the corporate space. So I do a lot of big stage events for um, companies. And I'd say, you know, every fifth, sixth event, as you can imagine, was hosted or being um, taken place at a beautiful golf course. The CEO or some of the executive team would go play. I'd get invited every time. Um, I would inevitably say, no, I'm going to go on a run, get a workout in, throw a kettlebell around or, you know, find some uh, jiu-jitsu gym to work out at or something like that. And then I started telling people that were golfers that I just passed on, you know, around at, at Cyprus or something like that. And their, their heads would explode because, you know, I, I didn't even know what I had in front of me. So, um, I also figured I was missing some opportunities to connect with some of the folks. And, and so, um, at that time we'd moved to, uh, Evergreen. I called a couple, um, uh, buddies and asked them, Hey, I want to get in this game. I need somebody to help me. And, uh, they directed me to, uh, the other man on the line, um, Steve and, and, and we, uh, linked up for, you know, just a kind of suite of lessons and then started playing a little bit together. And, um, I think that's testament to a couple things, not small of which, uh, his excellence as a coach and, and, and he didn't, he didn't grease me to say it. I'm, I've, I've, I've spent my entire life around coaching. And I mean that very, very sincerely. I mean, for being an athlete up through the SEAL teams, all we do is pull in the best coaches. Would that be like figuring out a weapon system, a knife, a piece of technology, a gear, whatever it is, um, we seek out the best instructors. And I think most people in life don't realize how important coaching is. I just think coaching, no matter what you're doing, is is really um you know, what separates the performers from the non-performers. And uh, he and I hit it off right away. And, and and he has a coaching style that very much appeals to me. He knows what to work with and when to stop and when to push and when to pull. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So that that's that's what kind of got me to the game. And, and I'm enjoying it more and more as I play. Yeah, I remember that first lesson very well. It was uh, It was at a point in my career where I was doing a lot of research and a lot of implementation on the mental side of the game. You know, we spent a lot of time working about mechanics and things like that. And, you know, a friend of mine had told me, hey, I've got this buddy. He was an ex-Navy SEAL. He wants to learn how to play golf. And I didn't really think much about it at the time. And I'm like, well, that'd be cool. He'll be an athlete, I'm pretty sure. And so work out to the lesson tee. We spent an hour, hour and a half together. And immediately it just gelled. And the, the first lesson didn't have so much to do with anything major mechanics. See, I mean, there was a couple things that we worked on, but we just really worked on intent and what, what's the ball flight that we're looking for and how we can achieve that. And it, the conversation then kind of grooved over into the similarities between hitting a golf ball, performing a golf shot, and shooting a rifle, uh, which he is an expert marksman, obviously, as a as a Navy SEAL. And, and uh, so we'll, I'll have you go a little bit more into that work. But I want to tell how the lesson ended up. It was pretty unique. Um, my next student coming up on the, on the lesson team was, uh, uh, he won the club championship at Taiwan a few times. And so I, I introduced the two guys as work was leaving and, and Ray was walking up. And after Rourke left the tee and it was just me and Ray, Ray goes, 
hey, did you see his movie? And I'm like, what? What what movie? And he said, uh, Act of Valor. I'm like, well, yeah, I've seen the movie. And he goes, that was Rourke. And I had never even put it together. And I had seen the movie. It was incredibly impactful. Uh, I watched it again last night with my son. But it was impactful because I was with a Golden High School basketball team. And um, one of the assistant coaches had two sons who were going through Navy SEAL training at that time. And so it just it just hit home. And, and then the next thing Ray said to me was, have you read his book? And I'm like, well, no, I haven't read the book. And I got it. I got the book uh, damn to you after that. And it was, uh, it was just incredible. But he's worked as such a humble guy. And you, I would have never known he was a movie star um, or really had a very keen grasp of what being a Navy SEAL is all about. So that was a pretty cool first lesson. And, and the way we morphed into talking about dolphin shooting, uh, I'd like for you to kind of expand on that a little bit, uh, Rourke, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. No, I'm happy. To, I mean, it, it's funny. I think I think when you're an athlete or into human performance, you know, folks that take that seriously, you know, obviously like kind of figure out the holy trinity of everything you're doing with it being mental, physical, spiritual, and how all those things kind of tie together in performing at a high level. And most of the greats seem to figure out a way to blend and marry all that stuff, um, you know, kind of seamlessly or effortlessly. And so uh, I think a lot of high perform also also figured out how to um, – you know, equate one thing with something else and apply skills in one discipline to another discipline. And there's, you know, tremendous research on this, of course, but, you know, somebody that that gets to some exceptional level in almost anything, I think, has a better chance of doing so and replicating it across a spectrum of skill sets because they understand the work it takes, um, where they need to focus their attention and how to seek out um, instruction and kind of uh, uh, guidance to do that well. So, um, you know, in, in those first few, I don't know, three, four lessons that that um, um, Steve and I kind of put in. And from that point, we just started, you know, playing and goofing off. And I probably need some more to refine. Um, but it, it became as 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 Steve was explaining things all that could was cranking through my brain. It's like, this is exactly like taking an effective shot on, on a weapon system in, in the military, or, or if you're a hunter or a long range shooter, I mean, these things are, are virtually identical, almost eerily. So in the sense that um, if you think about, you know, from the location you're at, you need to do a whole bunch of th things with, um, you know, focus and mechanics and points of performance. And if you want to get multiple results the same way, you've got to do that in a, you know, consistent fashion to then get a result downrange or down, um, you know, stream or down the course with basically a projectile. And by the way, while you, you can do, you, you know, um, trigger squeeze, sight alignment, sight picture, breathing, follow through and shooting, you know, alignment on a, on a golf tee, you, you know, good backswing, follow through all the, you know, all the different things you're going to do on a golf tee. Um, it really ends up living up in your head more importantly or equally to how that's going to go. I mean, you could teach anybody the greatest mechanics, but you look, you know, every Sunday at the, at the final round of a big tournament. And it seems like it's the mental game, not the physical game that, that are, that are the boys or the gals that are left uh, on Sunday. And that's very much the same in shooting folks that shoot consistently under pressure and high intensity have figured out they have to do all the mechanics, right. But much more so they need to have, you know, the consistent kind of mental behavior and focus to do so the same way so once that kind of connected i think 
I think like Steve said, you know, no later than like our second um, lesson, it became much easier for me to frame how I would approach, you know, a golf swing compared to how I'd approach pulling the trigger. Rourke, how important is breathing and controlling your emotions and your potential anxiety uh, when you're when you got a rifle in your hand and you've well, got maybe an enemy in, in the sights? Sure. Well, it equates again, yet, a, yet another kind of one for one that I think anybody that plays golf or probably listen to this podcast will be able to appreciate is how many times have you gone to the range in warmups and just hit gorgeous shots because there was absolutely nobody that cared you included about what happened. And then you bebop over to the first tee and three, mm -hmm. you know, foursomes are waiting and you got your buddies with you and everything just erodes into catastrophe in your next shot. Well, that, that's not because you don't know to have hit the shot. All of a sudden the mental pressure and, and intensity has been layered on top of what you were doing and it utterly changes the game or just erodes it or takes it away. As you might imagine, I could teach an orangutan to shoot effectively uh, on a combat pistol and rifle range. Um, it is a much different thing to take that skill set when somebody is shooting at you and or the shot counts so much on its intensity and 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 you know of course in that life you know when you're pulling the trigger in that um situation you're obviously in the act of taking another life which layers in an unbelievable level of uh of of, of emotion and intensity to it so the ability to breathe to settle yourself to calm yourself amongst the chaos and, and then be able to you know kind of focus on the points of performance to do it well that's pretty much the whole game for elite operators. I mean, our, our guys practice with such intensity that when we come jumping out of that helicopter and doing things that most people only see on a video game or a movie, but if they actually committed some time and said, oh my gosh, this is something real people do, it's not for everybody. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into it to be able to metabolize that mental game um, to perform at a high level. Yeah. Yeah, the studies I've done using a thing called a focus band of getting people out of the left brain and into the right brain, it, it really is as simple as controlling your breath. And yep. it's I think it's often overlooked, but certainly a, a keen aspect of performance, no doubt about it. Rourke, one of the things that stood out in, in the book, uh, in, in the couple chapters I got through last night, was the the phrase "seals always have a plan," and I, and I think that's relatable to to golf to a certain degree. You know, from from both Steve's perspective as a coach, where I, I'm sure after that first lesson, uh, and maybe even just a couple minutes into that first lesson, he had a plan for you. He he looked at your swing and said, "Okay." I see what I'm dealing with. Let's create a plan. Let's walk through it and let's make sure that it's, it's a solid plan. And at the same time as a golfer, you know, you have to come up with a plan to say, here's where I am today and I want to get better. And here's the plan to do so. How important is that plan both for a golfer and an instructor? Uh, I mean, I would say critical. I, I, I think if I try and equate it to, you know, the military side is, is, um, we took tremendous, tremendous effort and, and um, practice in planning for any mission set we would execute on the battlefield. I mean, we're talking hours uh, at times, days of preparation and planning to then go execute on something that could go go within minutes uh, to complete the action, or maybe it was a you know multi-hour, multi-day event. Um, 
so building a plan and building a level of kind of repetition and knowledge of what you're attempting to do and what you want the result to be is both, again, physically and mentally a tremendously important thing to do. So we, we commit a lot of time to that. The other thing, and I think golf, golfers will certainly understand this, is we also have this saying that no plan survives first contact. It means no plan um, usually goes the letter once somebody starts shooting at you or something crazy happens that you didn't expect or couldn't have predicted. And um, while it's certainly not as intense on a, on a golf course, you know, one, you know, fouled shot or one, you know, kind of big mistake can, can take that plan and throw it out the window and, and, um, and, and really affect the entire rest of the day or until you can, um, like C says, breathe, calm yourself, center yourself and kind of get back. Um, I think another combination, you know, kind of parallel between golf and, and combat is also this, this ability to not have a memory that plays on your, you know, plays on the moment. I, I mean, in the most intense of all situations, I've been on mission where we've lost teammates or lost, um, you know, lost allies on the battlefield in the fight. Uh, that would be a very easy time to, you know, fold up your tents and go home. Um, what we realize is you got to win the gunfight first. So even if your best friend goes down right next to you, you don't have time to mourn that person, deal with that, or, or, or you know, kind of, a, a, um, handle that situation. You got to win the fight first and then, then we'll deal with the fallout of that and move forward. And, and obviously in a far lesser level of intensity, but golf is like, if you, you know, if you take a bad shot, you take a good shot, you, you gotta, you, you gotta know that the next shot has almost nothing to do with the, with the last two. And, and certainly if it's bad, um, just to let that go and, recenter yourself and kind of move on to the next um, part of the game. So it's, it's another thing I bring from my last life that I, I try, I try to implement the golf space, but I'm sure to have a, have had a couple days where things started going south and I never recovered. <laughs> we all have those days. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Rourke, when you're, when you're speaking with corporations and high level executives and doing your presentations, which, uh, Oh, yeah, I guess in, in the past we're mostly in person, now over Zoom. But uh, share with us a couple of the battlefield stories, uh, if you can get into any specifics that you found through your experience relate to these business, ex business executives and how they, they're able to uh, take something away from your own personal experiences and apply it to their own life, um, if, if, you, if you will. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, the thing that I've, I've loved about it is very much like this conversation where I think these comparisons between shooting, combat, and golf could very much on paper, if you didn't do any time to kind of connect the dots, um, you would think there's no connective tissue between those two things. But there are. And, and so I think while the, the potential catastrophic results that take place, um, you know, in combat operations are about as intense as anything you can engage in. The principles that lead towards that performance spread across any, I think, any level of performance or any level of human interaction. So I, I'll often have executives come up and be like, God, you know, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but there's no comparison between what I do and what, what you do. And I say, you might be surprised. I mean, again, the results might be different, but the performance, the lessons, the concepts work across those kind of planes. Um, so I, I, I like telling stories. I mean, I'll, I'll tell stories more than I'll, I'll ever put up a pie chart or a bar graph or, you know, point to something that, Hey, here's the three principles you need to know. I like telling a story that either has a punchline or a teaching point, um, that I think somebody can kind of put in their toolbox in the corporate space or the team space, um, and, and use it moving forward. I mean, once one story I tell is, uh, one of the first times I was over overseas in combat over in Afghanistan, 
Afghanistan. Um, I led a sniper team up on a mission where we were doing what's called a special reconnaissance. So we're supposed to be basically looking at an area where we know Taliban, bad guys are coming in to plant some of these roadside bombs people have heard so much about that probably took more American and coalition forces life, life than any bullets ever did. Those roadside bombs were hideous. So I take a four-man team. The sun comes up. We go into the cover of darkness. The sun comes up, and I've got uh, two snipers. Um, one of the snipers is also a medic, a communicator, and myself. We're on binoculars and spotting scopes looking at those whole hillside to see where the Taliban might be coming in to um, plant these bombs. And as soon as the sun comes up, all of us are on binoculars and my lead sniper says, Hey boss, you know, at 1200 meters away at about your, you know, 1130 position on the clock, I see, you know, 60 head of goats and like three goat herders up there. Let's kind of pay attention to them. Takes me like a minute and a half on the same pair of binos he has to find six animals up on the hillside and these three goat herders, but I find them, I log it down in the chart. Two hours later, he says, ah, I think I got something. I think if you look at the 12 o'clock position, about 900 meters dead in front of us in a dark stand of timber, I see what looks like a, a, a cache or a resupply location. One of the reasons the Taliban could move so efficiently through the mountains is they'd leave water, food, ammunition, places to sleep throughout, scattered throughout those mountain trails so they didn't have to carry that much on their back. It was a very, very effective strategy for them to move basically quicker than we could when we carried everything on our back chest as we moved through that environment. And so that one probably takes me three minutes on the same pair of binoculars with him talking me in to the spot to find out where that cache was. I'm, I'm like, I finally f- find it. Now I'm getting irritated because he's seeing everything and I'm not seeing anything. That afternoon, five bad guys come off from another location. He's like, hey, I got five military males. I see RPGs, heavy weapon systems. Like, can we engage? I called back to the senior command. I said, hey, can we engage these um, these targets? They said, no, because we just don't want them to know where you were spying on them. So we were able to call in aircraft. Aircraft dropped some bombs. We ruined their afternoon to be sure. We sneak out of there and go <laughs> back to base. And um, as soon as we get back to base, the very first thing we do, you do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You don't eat, sleep, or do anything else. You clean your gear, reset your gear, and get ready for the next mission. And that's how we can launch on a target You know, five minutes after we get called, if need be, because we're always prepped and ready. And I remember my lead sniper and I are the last two guys in the room. And I remember turning to him. This is one of my best friends. I was in his wedding. He was in my wedding. And I was like, God bless it, man. I don't understand. Like, we've got the same pair of binoculars. We're looking at the same hillside and you're seeing everything. I'm seeing nothing. Why is that? And he very, very simply said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, boss, are are you looking at the whole hillside? I said, of course I'm looking at the whole hillside. He's like, that's your problem. It's too much information to take in. So you've got to apply some order to the chaos. So you've got to put a grid on it or a pie or some level of convention that can let you look at a much smaller piece of the puzzle, burn in on that, check it off if there's something there, and then move on. And then he walks out of the room and he leaves me with this nugget that you know the, the audience can listen to right now if, if ever there's a good thing to put in your bag of tricks. And this is all he said to me. He's like, boss – if you look at less, you'll see more. And he walks out of the room, drops the mic. And I'm like, holy crap, man, what an unbelievable thing. I mean, the best thing was, it was a great tactical lesson. I mean, I, to this day, I'm an outdoorsman and hunter. And if I'm looking apart on a piece of terrain, I chunk it out and piece it up and burn in. Um, it turned out to be a better life and leadership lesson that particularly as leaders or, or if you're focused on any task, you almost always have too much information to deal with. You almost have too much work, too much data, too much stuff in front of you. And if you look at all of it, you won't get anything done. But if you're able to kind of burn in – 
on something that's critical, an immediate fire, something that's important in that moment. Um, you know, on the golf course, it'd probably be one individual piece of the terrain or what you need to know to make your next good shot. Then you'll see that and move on. If you don't, um, you'll kind of miss everything trying to look at everything. So that's how I kind of do it. I like telling stories. I like sharing those lessons and I let them run with the ball from there. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful story. And how I would relate that to golf instruction, at least from my point of view, is, you know, I'll get, uh, we'll, we'll say a lady that comes to the lesson tee and she'll say, you know, my husband has been trying to help me with my golf swing and I'm not getting anywhere. And I, my response to her typically is, yeah, your husband might see something wrong in your swing. He might see a multiple, uh, multiple things wrong. But the deal is what you notice and what the fix is are two different things. So he might notice something in the swing that needs fixed, but there's three underlying causes of what is, you know, making that happen and what's uh, really uh, putting her in position for air. And so that's, that's the, as I've taught golf longer and longer, it's, it's finding different ways to say the same thing. And it's also being identify an issue, but be able to backtrack of what really the cause of that issue is. That's very similar. It's obviously different because there's nobody shooting at us on the, on the golf course. Uh, but we've, we've got to be able to break it down into small chunks and be able to apply the most effective one that's going to get the quickest change so they immediately can hit the next ball a little bit better than the one before. Yeah, you um, bet. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's yeah. Well, it's funny that that you bring that up, Rourke. I think uh, two of the podcasts we've done already have been with people that focused on um, wading through the minutia and, and being able to to maybe clear their mind. You know, with Chris McChesney, he he wrote four disciplines of execution. And uh, his idea that you need to focus in on wildly important goals and you need to be able to forget the rest of the everyday, the chaos that uh, that causes problems and takes up all of your time. I mean, in, in your example there, you could spend all day looking at that hillside. And if you focus on that one spot and, and I, you know, that was that was incredibly uh, apropos to what he talked about. And then another one, Trevor Reagan talks about the science of learning and what people need to do to be better learners and the idea of the growth mindset and that you have to fail, but you have to be able to move past that to focus on what is really important. What about the SEAL training? What about your training? Uh is most relatable to, to the everyday person. I think those, your example and what those people talked about, very, very important. What do you think is the most relatable part of the training you've gone through for the everyday person? Yeah, I love that. It's a great question. Uh, let me give you two kind of two answers. The first part is something you um, kind of tripped something in my mind when you were talking about, um, you know, what, what, what you just said. And one, one of the things I think golf relates to combat or, or to, you know, kind of extreme environments. One of the things that was interesting about being a SEAL is people ask me all the time, you know, they can't imagine how stressful it must have been on the battlefield. And I tell them, and I say this sincerely, hands down the least stressful phases of my life by law and measure. And that's because I had nothing to think about except one thing. I wasn't worried about my phone bill. I wasn't worried about my honeydew list. I didn't care if the pipes were breaking. I didn't have to think about what my future was because there was no future if we didn't do what we need to do right now and do it well. And 
I mean, again, we're going to belabor the kind of point of the differences, but like if you can go on a golf course and like get rid of all the stuff that is going on in your business life, your personal life, all those other things, and just be present and enjoy the swing and enjoy the flow and enjoy the walk or the movement through that, there is no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure Steve and you would agree, that you're going to play a better round than if you're bringing all kinds of baggage into into what you're doing there. So that, that's, that's one thing that... Um, I wanted to mention because something you said made me think of it. And I think it's another parallel. Um, as far as the things from, from SEAL training that translate to, uh, you know, civilians, regular folks, uh, I could list 20 easy. I mean, 20, 20 things that would all have a good teaching point, would all have something um, of value and merit. And I, I tap into those all the time when people ask me specifics about, you know, business problems or culture problems at their organization. Um but I'll answer the question. A young man, it, it's so competitive getting into the SEAL teams, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, besides getting through training, it's hard to get to training. I mean, it's it's very competitive just to get a slot. Then you get there, and we have about a 75-80% attrition rate of folks that don't make it through training. So about 20-25% of the people that start SEAL training see the finish line. But the barrier to entry is even really hard. For an officer, it's it's astronomical on the numbers, how competitive to get an officer spot, which is the route I went. And I get a lot of young lions that, that either get my number through a friend or seek me out and want some mentor, mentorship and guidance on how to one, get in and then how to succeed. And I used to have a, um, about a three page word document that had everything I thought they should concentrate on pre-training mental focus, um, their commitment to the program, how I see the progression through that job and how to do that well as an officer. And I used to send this to them. I could copy and paste it, send to them that I would keep the conversation going. The email I send to them now is a response. And it says, all you need to know dot to dot in the subject line. And the only thing I need to write is don't quit. Hmm. I mean, literally, if you could bottle one thing from SEAL training, like if I could bottle the ability to not quit in a fizzy drink, we'd be talking about this right now from me on my private island that I flew to <laughs> on my private jet and have my private yacht hanging off the coast. Because, I mean, if you do nothing other than not give up in this life, no matter what you're attempting, you might not get there, but you'll damn sure go farther than if you you, you pitch the tent and, and, and call it good. Um, so that's the number one thing, that no matter what barriers thrown in front of you, if uh, whatever crucibles laid out, if you don't give up, um, you got a pretty good shot. And, and we saw it constantly in training. There are guys that showed up in that place um, that looked like Michael Angel had chiseled them out of marble. They're a sub-Olympic swimmer. Their parents are, you know, a doctor and, and an attorney. And, you know, they came from the best pedigree and they'd hit that cold water and they would quit on the second day of training. And then we get some kid in there that came from like, small town Kentucky with a little baby fat around him, taught himself to swim, you know, a month before he showed up and we cannot kill that dude with a nuclear weapon. There's nothing that we can do to get him to stop. And if you have that in you, you're going to go far, man. You're going to go far. It's not giving up. It's crazy. What happens between your two ears? Yeah, man. And and it's all in it. I don't want to say it's all in your head, but to a certain degree, it is. I, oh, I think, I think it is. I mean, if you ask me, people ask all the time what they think the percentage of kind of performance requirement is in SEAL training, you know, percentage mental to physical. And, and granted, I'm well aware that if you made it into our program, <laughs> you're probably not lacking fitness. But yeah. I'd say it's easily 90-10 mental to physical. Yeah. Easy 90-10. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> Rourke, in your in the your book, you make some references to Stoic philosophy, 
And I, I find that very fascinating because I look at the the life and the personality and the makeup of a Navy SEAL of, of being a, a true warrior uh, and I maybe savage at some point. But once I started reading the book and I'm like, okay, you know, there's some stoic philosophy in, involved here. These guys aren't savages. They're true warriors, but they're incredibly well-rounded. Uh, can you address that and how, how your uh, um, interest in stoic, stoic philosophy has kind of grown over the years? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I love to read, and my dad's probably the best, you know, one of the most well-read human beings I, I've ever met, and he shared, you know, some of the greatest of those writings in thinkers and and such with my brother and I. We both love to dig through that stuff, and um, you know, philosophy is something I really enjoy. I love the mental game. I love the you know search for meaning and 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 you know and playing and suffering and all these things we experience in humans on multiple different levels. Um, the Stoics really connected to me because um, they're, it'd be a long conversation to kind of break all, obviously all of it down, but very much based on being present, right? Just being present in the moment of what you're doing and kind of yeah. achieving, you know, virtue and goodness, um, you know, through your behavior, through repetition and through your mindset in all things. And, and, and I think one of the reasons the Stoics appealed to me so greatly is one, it seemed a very, very useful tool in going into combat that if I could have this kind of concept, um, cause one of the things they very much, and this is the hardest part in my mind of Stoicism to kind of understand and, and deal with is, is they kind of cast off a lot of these cares and concerns for many things we would find important, whether that be family, the love of your life or, or others around you to be focused and capable in the moment of performing as your best self. And so, you know, with kids and things like that, I didn't have kids when I was on the battlefield and, and um, I was very aware that I, I didn't want to fall in combat as much as anything, just to, you know, the pain my dad, my mom, my brother, my, my bride would find in me falling in battle. But um, I also recognized that if I thought or dwelled on that, if I took time on the battlefield to be worried about that, it would be a distraction from my ability to perform and so there's just something about the, the stoic kind of ethos that really i think served me well both in, in in my combat experience and then in the bulk of in the bulk of my life i'm, I'm more of a thinker than i am uh, a reactionary person i i like taking my time with a concept i can make a quick decision if bullets are flying in general i'd rather marinate on it and think about it and kind of come up with the best way um I want to kind of influence the moment or, or participate. I think um, I've always been disciplined. You know, I, I, I've been in nothing but rowdy, like kind of male groups my entire life. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. Um, I've kind of stayed a with a little more discipline than, um, and I, I'm not a preacher. I don't say don't drink, don't do like, do, you know, live your life, do your things. I, I, I'm jealous of some of my buddies that every once in a while had liquid courage inside a bar. Or, you know, wine seems like the right thing to have with a good steak. That being said, I also know like my, my excesses and my behavior that I think if I, I probably did any of that, I'd probably end up, you know, pushing it too far and doing bad things. But that discipline and that focus, it comes at a cost too. I mean, there, there's, there's, kind of no-go criterias in my life that I hold for friends and the type of people I want to be around. And um, it's probably created a much shorter list of, of, of folks and, and um, experiences, but there are those that I, I, that fall into these kind of disciplined concepts become richer, I think, because of it. 
because of it. So I, I think I think that's why the Stoics kind of jumped off the page for me. Yeah, it's interesting from my standpoint. I really didn't know much about Stoic philosophy until about, I don't know, three or four years ago. And I actually had given you a copy of the book once I picked it up. And I want the listeners to all uh, key in on this because I think it's one of the best books out there. And it's called The Obstacle is the Way. Uh, yeah. Uh, Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph, but it's by a guy by the name of Brian Holiday. And I read this book, and the first thing I thought of was, this is the best golf instruction book I've ever read, and the word golf is not mentioned in the book one time. Um, And I still hold that to be true. And one of the ironic things that uh, just came out, I think it was in either Golf Digest or Golf Magazine article, was Rory McIlroy you know, who's been number one player in the world um, has, uh, has identified this book as something that he has put on on the shelf and refers to. And it's helped him overcome some of the mental challenges with the game that, uh, that he's experienced over the years. So, I, again, listeners, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday is a, is a great pickup for you to uh, apply not only to everyday life circumstances, but certainly your golf game. For sure. Work. I'm going to change directions really quick. You know, I, th- I think we could talk about, um, you know, golf and, and relating it to what you've done in the military all day. But uh, in doing a little bit of research, uh, you key in on leadership a lot. And leadership is one of the things that has, has stood out to me. And I think it's really, really interesting. And, and we've kind of touched on it. But, but uh, uh, I saw a video. I, I think you were at a, a lacrosse conference. And you read a quote. And, and it was about the conversation between the squire and the Persian king. Yeah. And I, and I keyed in on it. And I was listening. And I was like, man, this is good. This is good. This is good. And at the end, you read the last statement. And you said, he serves them, not they him. And I was blown away. I even showed it to my wife. I said, just listen to the last part of this. Yeah, man. I was, I was so jazzed. I was so pumped uh, when I heard that. And it related back to... I think to me quite a bit, um, you know, in this next phase of my career, but in, in where I've been in the past, uh, he serves them, not they him. And I thought that was great. What are some key tenets of leadership that you learned in your time? Uh, you were dealing with so many different people on, on your teams uh, and then in training. What, what are some key tenets that really stood out? I think that right there is one of them. And, and, and uh, it really, I just want to hear what your thoughts are on, on key tenets of leadership. Yeah, no, I mean, look, this is, uh, this is, this is the subject. This is, you know, why I've been able to keep the lights on at home. And it's the only thing I got paid for to do in the military. I I learned how to shoot, jump, blow things up, dive, uh, and all the good stuff that, that wasn't my job. My job was the lead and that, that is what I got paid for. And I took that very, very seriously so much so that, um, yeah, I probably missed a lot of the exciting opportunities knowing full well that that wasn't, that was the job for the boys do is my job to step off the line, to orchestrate the chaos and, and the madness and make sure we were working in a fluid, um, successful, functional, efficient way when we were out there doing things. The the quote you, uh, you, you referenced is one of my all time favorites. I mean, I have, I have a quote sheet, um, and list that I've, I've been, you know, compiling for years and that one easily rests in 
the in the top five along with Churchill and and um, some of the you know the the great philosophers and um, Shakespeare. I mean that level of writing, and that's from Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire. He also wrote the Legend of Bagger Vance, which a lot of people would know from the golf story. But um, yeah, that was a squire talking about Leonidas, the Spartan king, and he's telling this Persian who just defeated these three hundred Spartans who now. <laughs> very much to his chagrin had to go face 10,000 Spartans in the next fight and having seen what 300 did to his forces he wanted to understood understand who they were and in particular the king the king um Leonidas in this this scene and in this battle was the first king that this Persian had ever seen standing on the front line of battle for the initial wave of assault and then multiple tours on the front line equal to that of his lieutenants and foot soldiers until he himself fell um, in battle. Now, now a lot of people, if they know Spartan history, the Spartans actually keep two kings in place for that very reason, knowing that the the, the head leader um, could and very may well fall in battle and that that line of secession maintains. But other parts of that quotes are, you know, he does not sleep when his men uh, uh, stand watch upon the wall. He does not dine while his men go hungry. Uh, the harshest burden he lifts first and sets down last. Um you know, he doesn't buy his man's loyalty, but commands it through the sweat and the pain of his own back and, and what he endures for their sake. And then you pick the best part. He serves them, not they him. Um, it, it just occurred to me very early in my career that my job was to serve. It was not to have people working for me. So I never, ever thought in terms of as I went up the chain of command, now more people work for me, it was as I go up the chain of command, now I have more influence to work for them. And, and this was very much driven home. My very first commanding officer is one of our uh, commanding officers, like a company CEO in the military, uh, is a community legend. I mean, one of these guys that was just an absolute warrior, poet, uh, thoughtful, fierce, tough, amazing, amazing leader. And everybody in that command knew he was at the bottom of the command, not the top. He was the most, you know, available to work on your problems um, as anyone at the command. And, and so I, I, I tell this a lot to leaders. I'm like, look, if you if you think the higher you go up the flagpole, the more people work for you, you're blowing it. And you might not know it, but your troops definitely know it. And if it's the opposite, there's nothing that team won't do. Do for that type of leader. Um, so I think that idea of service, I think that idea of um, setting the example, I mean, I don't think you can ask your folks, uh, you know, if you want your your organization to show up exactly at 6 a.m., you better not be showing up at 6.05 yourself. You better be there at 5.30. If you want them to be in the best uniform, you know, your uniform better be the sharpest. And so all these things, you know, are kind of non-negotiable and very simple, but there's a whole bunch of leaders that don't don't do that. Um, I'm also a huge, huge um, on the lookout for and value judgment. Um, and I would almost toss a coin sometimes on judgment versus character. I mean, every leadership book you're ever going to read will have chapters committed to character. And look, I'm for character. I believe uh, I believe in myself and most people that know me would say that is a person of high principles and ethics and character. That being said, if you told me tomorrow, you know, you, gotta, you can go out door A and door B. On the other side of door A and door B, you're going to get into a horrific gunfight on the battlefield, okay? And, and you're picking door A and door B by the leader that's going to lead you in that fight. If door A was a leader of impeccable character, but 
crap judgment and door B was a leader of questionable character and exemplary judgment, I'm going out door B 10 times out of 10. And we can work out the character thing <laughs> later. You know? and, and I think we see that in all senior leaders. I mean, I'm a big fan of Churchill. Um, he, a book I read by Churchill is the reason I served in the Navy. I'm working on a proposal for a Churchill book as we speak. And um, I mean, imagine if that guy existed in the 24 hour reporting cycle and, you know, the current media, he, he would have never been in charge of that country. And what would this world be for not that statesman? You know, and he was rough and had cigars in his mouth and bourbon every day and, 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 you know, said foul things to people. But he had the judgment, the foresight, the vision to lead this country and the grit to do it through, you know, one of the most challenging times in, in, in world history. So I just call on leaders to, to, to think of others before themselves, to um, seek out challenge and hardship. I think that's another thing I'm trying to figure out how to do with my kiddos. I don't want them to suffer too much, but I don't want them to suffer too little because when you do hard things, you're inoculated for hard things. If you try and avoid hard things, I guarantee you they're going to find you and then you're going to be wishing you pushed a little harder to be ready for it. Um, so those are some of the big principles I like sharing. And, and, and most of the principles I share kind of go for business and they also go for life because I think it's all connected. Yeah, it, I would agree with you. I, I think it's so interesting. Uh, the more I read about leadership and, and how I really do feel like it's pretty simple. And if it's some of those things that, that you just noted, and if, the, if you keep those things close to your chest, you're, you're going to do pretty well. Yeah, you know, it's simple but hard. It's very yep. basic. If you do the basics well and you do the simple things well, the problem is doing the simple things well is, is usually the hardest thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, but it's, it's worth it. Yep, I would agree. Patrick, you've had great training in that because uh, the Colorado PJ Executive Director, Eddie Ainsworth, I don't know how many times I've heard him say, I work for you. And uh, you've had a fortunate situation to have trained under the very best. And I know you're going to take that to the uh, Southern Ohio section and be able to implement some great things and, 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 and lead but also serve at the same time. It's, uh, it's been proud uh, to be a part of the Colorado PJ section because I see that's how our section operates. And I'm not looking for anything for the shout out from anybody, but uh, I feel pretty strongly about that, that uh, we are the best section in the country and our leadership is why you being a part of that. Thank you. I appreciate that, Steve. Love it. Well, with that, uh, Rourke, thank you for your time. I want to be respective of, of your afternoon, and, and uh, I would imagine your kiddos are at home with everything we're dealing with lately with the pandemic. <laughs> we're so. in it, man. We're in it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hopefully the, the end is soon. Uh, fingers crossed on that. But uh, can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, I look forward to uh, to putting this together and, uh, and finishing that book. Like I said, I jumped in. I didn't have time to, to, to jump in two chapters into a book, but I couldn't put it down. Uh, I I, I thought it was great. You know, my, my brother served in active duty in the 82nd airborne, uh, for six years. He's, he's wrapping up close to 20 years, uh, between active duty and and reserve. So I feel a bit of a connection. Um, and, and I shared, you know, the first, uh, first part of that book with him. Uh, and I said, this is what you talk to me about all the time. So it, it, yeah, it hit home for me. No, tell him I say, hi, uh, those, uh, that's, that's a fabled, fabled military crew right there. That, that's yeah. the real deal. Yep, for sure. So thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for your time. Uh, 
We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, no, guys. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Great conversation. Thanks.